Hey, this is Thinking and Drinking. I'm your host, Bart Almond. Over the last 30 years or so, I've worked for major record companies, working with major artists such as Alabama, the Dixie Chicks, and the Florida Georgia Line. I've also been writing songs for the past 15 years, have over 50 cuts, two number ones, and made a lot of friends along the way. I'm going to be talking to some of those friends about songs, life on the road, and just life in general. I hope you have as much fun as I will. Today, we're going to have Derek George on the show, and you're going to laugh. You're going to laugh a lot. But first, thanks to Cathead Vodka for helping us out, making the mother's milk of Mississippi vodkas, and for their continuous love of live music. CatheadDistillery.com and Cathead Vodka on Instagram. Derek George. You may know him as the professor on Gilligan's Island. You may recognize him as a tire changer at the Indy 500. Or you may just know that he's a great freaking writer, guitarist, and producer. And that's probably more the truth. Derek George. Hey, you know what? I guarantee you're going to laugh, or I'm going to give you your money back. Um, hey, Bart. Uh, yes, Joey Turner, Engineer of Spectacular. Um, no one pays for podcasts. Wait, what? <laughs> this is this is free? Yeah, it's, it's totally free. So, so there's no money? Uh, zero. Here's Derek George. Derek George. How are you? Bartimus Dude, Pyle. man. <laughs> Here we go. We're off and running. Thank you so much for doing this, man. I'm looking forward to it. Good to see you again. Yes, sir. We are down here. What do you call your studio? It's called the Monastery. The Monastery. Mm-hmm. Nice. Is this yeah. where you drink beer from Trappist Monks? Yes. I, yes when I went available. <laughs> More, the monks never got into whiskey. It's more whiskey these days. Ah, oh, yes, yeah. yes. Well, we brought you a little cathead vodka. Yeah, they're our friends. I like those guys, Jackson, Mississippi, home folks. Dude, it's a, it's a. They got a big music festival this summer that we're thinking about traipsing down there for. But it's cool. Is man. it in Jackson? Yeah. Oh, boy. yeah. But uh, yeah, man, it's good yeah. stuff. Hope somebody, somebody around here likes some oh, yeah. vodka. Oh. Well, there's plenty. <laughs> <laughs> it won't last long. There's always two or ten. Yeah. So you were a Philadelphia, Mississippi, born and bred. Uh-huh. I grew up down there. It's the, the home of Marty Stewart is from yes, down there. Um, and uh, this young upstart that's out there right now killing it, Michael Hardy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's is from, he from Philadelphia. There? I didn't know that. Yep. His sister is from down. Uh, their family and our family are... are they used to ride up together, like when Madison, his sister, moved up here. She went to Belmont, and uh, she's an incredible singer. But uh, Michael's really just been killing it, man. I mean, yeah, he no is kidding. Really, really writing some incredible songs. So is his sister's name Laurel? <laughs> no, 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 but she really is an incredible singer. Yeah, like I, I can remember doing the Jimmy Rogers Festival down in Meridian. Oh yeah, and I remember seeing her play there. I mean, dude, she was young. I mean, she had been like. Eight to ten years old. I mean, like, incredibly savant, talented singer. Hmm. That's cool. Are you from a musical family? No, no. I'm, I, uh, I think I'm the only person that... Uh, I, well, I guess at some point my dad learned to play guitar a little bit because when I forgot my first guitar, he taught me how to play Wildwood Flower. He remembered enough about how to do yeah. that, but that's the only recollection of any kind of uh, memories of music in my family. I know my, my mom was a... Was a uh, was a fan of music, and so I listened to uh, uh, 
he listened to the doors. A lot of that stuff was playing in the background. Yeah. Tom Jones, I mean, stuff like that was playing. Eight tracks. We had the big stereo console for the, you know, oh, yeah. the big vinyl records and the and uh, and the eight tracks that would just those program buttons never worked at all on those things. It would just skip around. He was like, yeah. I want to get back to this song. <laughs> <laughs> it never would work. Or you'd be listening to Allman Brothers live at the Fillmore, and in the middle of a three-minute solo, it would change tracks. Mm-hmm. And oh, yeah. Go down and kink and go back up. Golly. But that's a, that's where I kind of got my love for music was, was I, I guess my mom was the first person to ever play music around me. How'd you get your first guitar? Uh, I, I remember just... Did you start on guitar? I did. I um, I remember the first mu- uh, record I ever bought with my own money was Kiss Destroyer. So nice. that would have been late 70s. Late 70s, yeah, 78, 78, 79, probably. Yeah. And, uh, and I remember uh, just hearing electric guitar, and I remember literally crystallizing for me at five or six years old that that's what I wanted to do. I yeah. literally remember it being that clear of, I don't know what that making that sound is, but that's what I want to do. And then, and then I wore my parents out for two or three years, and then my dad found an old uh, Silvertone uh, or Sears and Roebuck guitar. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't even know if it was a Silvertone. It yeah. was some some form of a, a catalog, J.C. Penney catalog guitar or whatever, and yep. a uh, and a cheap custom amp. Uh, nice. And uh, and and literally. The custom amp was almost, it was on its last leg so bad that I literally, when I was practicing with my first garage bands, I literally would carry the head and literally just the speaker and hook the <laughs> things up to the speaker. And no cap. It sounded just like Jimmy Page, as I think back now. It's real fuzzy, kind of distorted when you just crank it. Sounded like that guitar case yeah, amp. Just, that, yeah. yeah, it just was real, real bright and ratty. <laughs> so who... who how how'd you start a I mean your first garage yeah. band? Cover tunes? Did you start cover writing? Tunes? Well you know what? We we weren't really good enough to learn any songs. I think we knew Crazy Train <laughs> and uh Biazzi and uh what else did we play? And so oh a few poison songs. I think they were big at the time and they were easy sophomore guitar parts yeah. to play and so it was easy to, to learn those and No uh, offense. No, no, no. I do the great records, all the great They're, records are simple. Uh, and yeah. uh and uh I uh, but but we did. We started. We were we were basically create. I'd come up with riffs and we'd create and write lots, mostly instrumentals. But I think out of necessity because we just weren't good enough to to <laughs> to learn any of the other songs, and right. so it was just easier to make something up. And and so we did. I think we had we had a one. My first song I ever wrote was called Wet Paint. It was an instrumental called Wet Paint. You know? And our drummer at the time, Rich Davison, he was the one who uh, named the song. <laughs> and the band, the, the band's name was Chrome Halo. Chrome Halo. Oh, there you go. I like that. Yeah, I've always wondered, like, of course, huge Steve Morris fan, grew up listening to the dregs and all that stuff. It's like, yeah. how do you name an instrumental? Yeah. I mean, there's no necessarily, there's no hook in a chorus. Yeah. I mean, it's musical. I don't know. So uh, you were in Pearl River. Yep. So was that, did you start that band? No, I didn't. I was a, uh, I, I was just kind of playing around. I had been through several different garage bands. I was kind of a taskmaster as a as a band leader. I really would make make the people who were in my little garage bands practice on Friday nights because it would ch- prove to me whether or not they were committed to do right. it or not. Yeah, you know? and, I get that. And they had to give up their social life because I thought well, we're going to be playing on Friday and Saturday nights, so you got to be willing to yeah to practice on Friday and Saturday nights. And I was I was I was kind of an ass, <laughs> and uh, and I. Uh, I can remember um, going through about 
you know, four or five different cover bands that were our little rock bands. And then I started kind of getting more into the singer-songwriter side of things because there are more opportunities to play for frat sure. parties. And, um, you know, I remember I had to go up to Ole Miss and one of my buddies who was a, 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 a frat boy up there said, hey, look, man, you can come play at Ole Miss. Uh but I, you just need to learn some songs, like learn some Indigo Girls and learn some, you know, that was big college yeah. music at oh, the time, yeah, Violent Femmes and all that kind of stuff. So I would, I learned a bunch of those songs and I'd go up there and play for the Pretty Tridel Girls and Ole Miss yep. and Mississippi State. And uh, and that kind of led to me realizing maybe I, I need to really kind of focus on this side of things. And I happened to be playing, we have a huge um, county fair down in Philadelphia called the Neshoba County Fair, which is world famous for the people in our hometown move to that fair. And live for a week. Mm-hmm. And you, literally, they conduct all business, and um, they have a post office that runs out of there and everything really? that delivers to the cabins. And uh, and it's it's kind of world famous. Uh, all Lots of presidents have came and spoke there and all that for huh. political seasons. But uh, I happen to be playing, uh, playing around different cabins because it's kind of like it's for a week. People just basically drink and travel around, you know, with their friends and yeah. hang out at different cabins. And it's kind of just a, a great way to get to know people and see people that you hadn't seen in, in years or whatever. And so I would play at these different cabins, you know, just doing songwriter stuff and, and uh, cover tunes. And I happened to be playing next door to Marty Gamblin's cabin and Marty uh, ran Glen Campbell management and music out of Nashville. And he yeah, was also yeah. instrumental in getting Alan Jackson, his first, deal yep. and uh they they owned alan's publishing they were they were his publisher and and management early on and i mean i think alan was killing it as a writer i mean he was killing himself as a writer for the first five or seven years before he even got a record deal yeah he got turned down he claims by every major label in town he got turned down twice yeah and it was the third time that arista finally went all right but but it lets you know why those first three or four records they're basically a product of seven years worth of songwriting. Such you know, great writer. Yeah, and yeah. and that was the, uh, and and I, having to play next door to Marty's cabin led to uh, there was an older regional band that I grew up kind of going to their shows, and they were kind of the the guys that everybody looked up to. Yeah, they were yeah. called the Toys, and um, they had started. It was when country music had really become the cool thing. It was late eighties, early nineties. Oh yeah, and. Um, they were starting to grow a fan base, and they were called the Dean Woolley Band at the time because of the lead singer, one of his friends, and they just used his name as the moniker, and they, they went with that for a while. Well, they started really drawing crowds, and uh, after I played for Marty— Wait, so was Dean in the band? No. He was, it was just like, like Leonard Skinner. You know? right. I mean, it was kind of the same kind of process. <laughs> you know, just name, name the band after somebody that you know or whatever. And, uh, and th- so when Marty started working with me and started working with them at the same time, and it just, I started getting up playing with them at shows, and then it just kind of led to them, hey, man, you know, we need a high harmony singer and someone young, because they were all in their late 20s, early 30s, and I was 18, and that's how I became a part of oh, wow. Pearl River. Okay. And then he appeared to the showcase, got a record deal, and hit the road. I mean, I literally went from graduating high school one day to being on a tour bus, and Never stopped, never looked back for like 10 years. You, know? you guys were on Capitol, right? We were on Capitol. Yeah. Uh, it was called Liberty Records. They had to open oh, up the right. old imprint, right. Liberty. It's when Bowen, Jimmy Bowen yeah. was running it. Yep. Yep. So how did that lead to Brian White? Well, management, uh, Marty Gamlin uh, ended up being Brian's manager. And uh, Brian and I became roommates because uh, at the time I had a girlfriend who was a serious girlfriend. And... 
we were splitting up and I was needing a roommate. He was needing a roommate. And I just like, hey, man, we had already kind of had a kindred friendship because yeah. same management uh, involvement. And I was like, well, man, let's just get a room. I said, I'm going to be gone all the time. I'm on the road anyway. And, if, you know, I need somebody here just to watch my stuff. And that, that's kind of how that started. And then what happened was there were all these songs that were getting pitched to Pearl River for us to cut. And I would save these cassettes of the ones that I felt like were my favorite songs. And the one songs that I fought for in Pearl River to get cut that never got cut. And two of those songs end up being Brian's, really, the, the career launch Pat. Really? They, they were uh, uh, Someone Else's Star and oh, Rebecca man. Lynn. Yeah. And, and, I, and I gave those songs to Brian, and I said, Brian, I said, dude, they're not letting us cut these, but I think they're awesome songs. And he took them to Kyle and Billy, and they loved them. And, um, and so that kind of led to his success, and Brian and I were writing a lot of songs together, and I was still in this band, and things were going nowhere for us. We got a great band, but... As yeah. music business does, I mean, you yeah. know, it's not everybody makes it. You know, there's yeah. well, like one in seven. You know, I think you got a better chance of getting struck by lightning than being successful <laughs> as an artist. You know, and <laughs> and we had done two albums and had, had had no radio success. Yeah, but I had written Brian's uh, second single and it was doing well on the charts, and uh, got to, it was his first hit, and um, got in the top twenty, and it was at that point that I was just like. The band was starting to fall apart because of family strains. You know, some of those guys had kids and yeah. weren't making any money. It was tough for them to. They were all looking at the looking down the barrel, going, "Man, what are we going to do? This is all we're going to be doing yeah. for the next two or three years. None of us can stomach it. Our wives are about to run us off now, as it is." And so, the band was kind of in its breakup stages already. And then I just kind of just said, "Hey, you know what? Brian is taking off. I'm writing songs. I'm playing and singing more on his record." than I am on my own record, and, yeah. uh, you know, with the band. And so it just seemed like an obvious fit. And so the guys that remained in Pearl River stayed, and we kind of became his band. Oh, Brian was really? out selling T-shirts for us while we were out on the road, but then it kind of, we became his band. Okay. And then over the course of a period of time, some of the other guys moved back home, and uh, and then it was a kind of, we re- rebuilt the band, and but... I was there with Brian from day one. So, yeah, it's it's not quite so glamorous when you're a, a father and your wife and two kids are at home and you're gone 300 days a year and you're making twenty four thousand dollars. Yeah, it's oh, it's dude, it was it was awful. Man, I think we were yeah. making like three hundred and seventy five bucks a piece every two weeks. It was like oh, I literally man. remember going, "Yeah, this is we're not going. This three hundred seventy five bucks is not going to last very." Yeah. You know, between, you know, you're just going like, my, my mom, I mean, for the first two years I was up here, she was bringing me care packages of cases of Mountain Dew and ramen yeah, noodles. You know what I'm saying? You're yep. just, you're living in an apartment like, like a bunch of kids in college, yeah. but, but, but you're learning the hard knocks of the road, not, you're not learning about philosophy. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that came later. <laughs> and you're out on the road and you're not exactly living in your healing. No. Yeah. And, uh. So how did how did this lead to you producing Brian's? Because you uh, produced two albums, right? Yes, we. Uh, Kyle Lenning, who was Brian's uh, uh, producer yeah. and uh, head of the label, and the late great Billy Joe Walker Jr. Yeah, um, they were Brian's um, producers, but they knew that Brian and I were really really close, and we were writing a lot of these songs and um, and and the demos that we were doing. They weren't they weren't record ready polished yet, but I think Kyle 
he came to me one day and he says, look, this next record, you and Brian need to be prepared to produce some of this. And, and he just said, y'all hmm. are ready. We were already using things of our demos right. and augmenting, you know. Yeah. And, and I think I have never uh, ever respected any, any other uh, person in this industry as much as I respect Kyle. Because yeah. Kyle's philosophy was, I don't care how it gets done. No ego. It was, I don't care how it gets done. It just needs to get done right. And, hmm. and if what you love about something is that quirky guitar part, if it sounds like a kid's in his bedroom playing and he hardly can play, but that's where the magic is, then, yeah. then you, you chase that. Don't chase the, the, Dude, that's awesome. the process so much. You chase what's, what's good about it. And Kyle was so open arms. He, he saw right away early on that I was a gearhead and he was a gearhead yeah. and, and that I had a passion and that was when I began to kind of transition. I was, I had, at that point with Brian, I had realized that I, I thought I wanted to be an artist at some point, mm-hmm. but then I realized, nope, I just want to write songs and produce records. I realized then that what I really liked was on this side of the glass. Right. And, um, and, and learning what different gear does and just falling, does and falling in love with that, you know, loving what, learning what Fairchild compressors sound like and what 1176s sound like and right. what API preamps and needs do and, and how all that stuff is like salt and pepper and color for making records, which unfortunately these days is lost on the yeah. majority of records made. But back then, in the, we were still working on tape. It was an art form, and uh, I miss those days. Yeah, it was, it was it's, it's hard to find your own voice now. Yeah, it's, it's a pretty homogenized yeah. market, and... And we all have to make a living, and so we all you adapt or die, and, and it's and it's yeah, it's one of those things that where uh, I don't know that it's bad or good. I, I don't know yeah. if the older people uh, uh, before us felt like felt the same way that a lot of us who have been here for twenty five years feel. I don't know that they feel the same way. You know, I saw a documentary with Jeff Lynn yeah. from ELO, and he's he was re-recording all of the ELO hits yeah. on Pro Tools, yeah, because he just loved. The instantness of it. Oh, yeah. I don't guess that's a word. But in just the adding tracks and how fast yeah. and everything it was oh, and yeah. how unprecious it was. Yeah. Because, you know, I mean, you very well know more than me. If you rewind that tape X amount of times, oh, yeah. pretty soon you're starting to lose signal oh, and everything yeah. else. And, yeah. That's- no, there's – for what we've gained in ease of making the records, you know, it, we, we, we lost something, though, about the creative process because, you know – I don't know if we work faster because of all the advantages that we have sometimes. Hmm. I, I do think yeah. we I, I do think we get to 80% a lot faster, but I don't know that That's we get to 100% yeah. faster than we used to because uh, I, I don't I don't I wouldn't I'm not saying we all should go back. Sure. But there was something that happened when you when you had to get a good take and you had to uh, just a heightened sensitivity of of focus went into it whereas we're all lazy now and in some sense where we go well we got the benefit of we'll just roll the tape back and do another playlist and give me another track but then it leaves guys like me though I, i've got option anxiety when when i leave here because then i've got to <laughs> wade through yeah 30 ta- takes of vocals and 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 by the time i get done with that sometimes i lose my perspective and i have to go away from it completely to come back and go okay well technically it was all good but now there's just lose the emotion here and they have to go back digging for that so i don't know how much it helps our process but, and as a guitar yeah. player, you can lay down ten solos and then go back and construct yeah. one solo from those ten. Yes, and 
Yeah, is that good or yeah. bad? I don't know. I, I still, sure. Well, I think it's good for some guitar players, and I use it more for, in a sense of, it, it's logging the ideas for me because it's you know it's off the off the cuff at first, usually any time, and then it starts to develop into a theme for a solo. Right. That, 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 yep. And then yep. once I kind of stumble onto it after uh, you know fifty takes, and I'm going okay, yeah. now this is what I want to play. Yeah. Then I still try to go back and now I want to play this as a thought. Because certain something happens when you do that sometimes, pocket wise, that where it just feels yeah. more real and honest. Yeah. Well, do you rehearse the solo a little bit? Yeah. Well, it's, it's kind of that as you're as you're learning what you're playing and learning the parts you like about what the solo and understanding yeah. what's going on in the track is is this stepping on something else or should this be a space here? You know, you, you by the time you've done that, you know, twenty times, and you go, oh, okay, here's what the part is, and then. Then you can go play it. Do you have producing heroes? Do you model your style after anybody? Or do you, I mean, I know you have your own yeah, style, but I, I do. Um, I, I think both Brian and I, Brian, Brian and I were both very much enamored with the Mutt Lang world, right. and I think we were. I, I want to say that I, that that we're responsible in some ways. Not 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 us personally, but. The kind of music we were making was responsible for what paved the way for Rascal Flats and those because it was sure. very much a, a slick, you know, lots of chord changes, melodically driven, vocal driven, and 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 we were huge Mutt fans and we were the kind at that time that we would stay up to four o'clock in the morning recutting a drum take over and over and over yeah. again and 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 honing the arrangement and I think that's where Mutt's genius comes is is in arranging yeah and 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 I uh. We 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 loved all that stuff. We were I want to I want to I, I would I would say that we were the one of the first people in town that really started locking the drums down, and and doing that because I had learned I paid a guy who worked in Logic because Logic was put out by E Magic back then. This is way before Apple bought them. Wow! And they were kind of the the MIDI software, and Pro Tools was kind of the new on the scene as the the audio recording software. And there was no way back in the early days of Pro Tools, you had to set up your own grid. You had to tell the computer what the grid was. It right. did not. It did not drive that. And so, you'd literally have to get a click track in there and line all that stuff up to the click track and tell it. Well, here's bar one, beat one, bar two, beat two. You had to identify the beat was what, what it was called. And, right. and they still had that feature in there now, but you just don't need it because of the way we work. It's all starting from the grid most of the time, and you're driving the click from Pro Tools, but. Back then, I paid a guy from Logic. I said, I want you to teach me how to quantize audio in Pro Tools. I remember that. And I, uh, and I, and, I, and once he showed me that, I had a little piece of paper that represented the milliseconds for where all the eighth notes and sixteenth uh, notes would be. Man. And you literally had to type those in each edit, <laughs> you know, to, to lock it down. Yeah. It was, but it was an interesting, fun time, and I and I enjoyed it at the time. But then. But it took a long time. Now I can edit a drum track in three minutes. Right. It took a whole day to do one back then. Gosh, man. Well, as a producer, I mean, you, Brian, uh, Joe Nichols, Chase Bryant, and you've had a crap load of success with Randy Hauser, who's another Mississippi leg hand. Oh, yeah. That, I mean, are you, are you, who are you working with now? What are you doing now? Man, right now I've got four or five young baby acts that I'm just kind of, I, I like that process. Of, yeah. Uh, they'll uh, still listen to you. Yeah. They'll still listen to you. <laughs> and, and, and they're new to it. And they're, 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 uh, I like, of help, I like the help building what the brand is. Yeah. I like that aspect of it. And a lot of what 
you know, on, on the major records that I produced, they, that a lot of those guys were established artists, and I was kind of kind of come in and try to help modernize whatever it was that they were doing yeah. at the time. And, uh, and, you know, they they were like reinventions, you know, Joe and Randy. Yeah. You know, Randy had already had a, a decent success in the early 2000s, but then it kind of had a fallow period, and then it was time to, when, when Broken Bow signed him, you know, and I, and I give credit to that. A lot of it's the song selections and the place where Randy was at the time. You know, it was he was eager to to cut some outside songs and yeah. to, and to know we I need some hits. And uh, and Benny found some hits and we found some hits and and we went in. And it was and made good records with them. But it, it uh, I like the the process of being in with these new artists because you can really kind of help think about it from the ground up. How can we separate them? You know, and yeah. what, what what can I do that keeps it in the in the uh, in the football field, but at the same time, you know, is is the uh, sucker punch sneak play that's going the flea flicker that's going to get them down the road? You know, I like that part. Dude, of that's it. a hard thing, man. Yeah, it's a hard thing. But you have so much experience, of course. Yeah. Do you think uh, being such a good guitar player and writer and singer and everything does that help you at producing, or do you get in your own way sometimes? Uh, I can get I can geek out. And B two player, B two guitar player right. at times, but I always think pretty simple. I, I, like you know, I always my my solo approaches start with a theme and and then have some flash at the very end. I yeah. always like to make it feel like you're running up a ramp. You know what I mean? And then you're then you're falling off the edge. You know that's yeah. and I don't uh, and I think most of my solos they'll start out with a slow theme or that's musical that has some kind of correlation to what the song was. Yeah, and then at the very end, you play a little fast run or something like that that kind of makes people feel like the, well the energy level builds and stuff. I, yeah. But I, uh, guitar playing, this the the era we're in right now. I feel like we have some of the most incredible uh, uh, parts guitar players out there right now. I don't know if there's such a premium on soloing anymore, which I miss. You know, I, there's just yeah. it's that. it's not as I don't even understand, you know. I mean, I and and while I look around and see some of these guys who can play so much better than I could at their age because of YouTube and all this Dude, ability to learn absolutely. and and engulf themselves, and they're incredible guitar players. But but I I don't I don't I don't hear a lot of guitar solos a lot of times on the radio or records anymore. Where I go, well, that was saying something, you know. I don't I don't feel like I hear that as yeah. much anymore. No, that YouTube is. I mean, when I was coming up, it's like had the Stevie Ray Vaughan records yeah. and like I was telling my wife about this a year or so ago, I would literally stack nickels, dimes and quarters on the turntable stylus to slow the record down mm-hmm. so that I could figure out what he was doing. Yeah. I didn't know what his tuning was. I didn't yeah. know he was tuning down, but now it's like you go on YouTube and there's 400 live versions of every Stevie song or yep. Steve Lukather or whoever you want to say. And yeah, now a nine-year-old can play what yeah. I was playing when I was twenty-five. Yeah, because it's it's all right there. Yeah. It's, so, it's, do you still listen to guitar players? You listen to? I, any? I do. Um, Is it all Jerry Reed and them cats, or do you listen I, to new I, guys? I do. I, I like I like turning new guitar players onto those things that they had because you'd be yeah. surprised at how many of these guys just don't ever even. Oh, I know. I, and I'm watching them sitting here going, this, "I see this." Depth of knowledge that these new guitar players have, and how great they're playing. And I'll go, "You never heard of Jerry Reed?" And I'll go. Who's that? Yeah. What's I, that? What did he do? And I then you my grandpa used to like him. Yeah, and you'll play something from them, and they'll <laughs> yeah. go, "I ain't never heard anything like that in my life." Dude. And I said, "I said that's what Chet said." Yeah. <laughs> and, and when you got Chet going, 
This guy is absolutely insane. Um, Dude. I have a funny Jerry Reed story. Uh, I'm sure you do. He, uh, I was coming home. I'd been on the road with Brian for, we were out for, during the summer run, and it was, we were out for forever, and it was literally going to be home for two days, and we just bought this house, and I'm literally about to pull into the uh, subdivision, and Steve Warner calls me up and says, hey, Derek, I'm a, you got to come over here. I'm, I'm cutting a record on Jerry Reed. That's kind of a cool thing to say, first of all. Steve Warner called me up. Oh, well, <laughs> dude, we, we wore him out so much as young men that, you know, I'm, I'm, I, that guy is the nicest dude. human being and honest, real person. You know, I've only met a few of those in my lifetime. He's the real deal. And I mean, like he's the kind that he came and sat when my grandmother passed away here. He came and sat in the, in the uh, waiting room with us at the emergency room um, for – you know, one, wow. you know, every night, you know, wow. for two or three days. Real good yeah. people. But Steve calls me and says, hey, I got Jay Reed over here. Me and Gordon <laughs> Kennedy are doing a record on him. And so I go over there, and I, I call my wife, and I said, Leslie, I, I, I know I just now got home, but Steve wants me to come over here and meet Jerry Reed. And I said, I got to go. I got to go. And I said, because, I mean, it's Jerry Reed. And she goes, all right. <laughs> so I go over there, and and I walk in the door. And I haven't even been introduced or anything. And I walk in the door. He goes, George. And I said, yes, sir. And he goes, uh, here's your part. And he sang me this harmony part. Warner, you're going to sing this. And uh, it was a snowman. I mean, literally, it was. Dude. Right as soon as you walk in, Gordon, you're singing this. And it's going to sound like this. And he picks up a guitar. And these parts he was singing, I thought he was joking. Like right. It was just like so whacked out. I thought he's just pulling my leg. Right. And then he picks up a guitar and played the inversions. And it was the most jazzed out incredible thing i had ever heard and i was like oh my god the man is a genius i think sometimes those goofy smoky and the bandit movies made him look like such a goofball yeah. that you forgot how insanely talented he was yeah. he was insanely talented and uh i i uh <laughs> i just it's, then, then after that like we went we got in the booth to sing these parts and uh and I look at Steve, and because the part he gave me was a baritone part, and I'm high, sing high, yeah, and I was yeah. like, I said, "Steve, we got to switch parts." And he goes, "Okay, first take, George, you're singing the wrong part." And I was like, "I was like, well, damn, Jerry, I said I'm a baritone." <laughs> and he started laughing, and so we switched parts. We did the part. We came in, and he's sitting there, dude, and he's got on like a pearl snap button-up shirt, but no t-shirt underneath. I mean, completely unbuttoned. Just belly hanging out and sitting there talking. And he goes, George, you like Reese's Peanut Butter Cups? <laughs> and I said, yes, sir, I do. Yes, sir. And he goes, reach over there behind you. And he had a like a gallon freezer bag of already pre-shucked Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. <laughs> and I sat down and ate Reese's Peanut Butter Cups with Jerry Reed because that's what you do. Because that's what you do. <laughs> It'd be just rude of you to turn him down. Oh, yes. So, like... And Gordon Kennedy's a pretty nice feller, too. Dude, that dude, freakishly talented. Yeah. Freakishly talented. And insanely unassuming. Yep. Which most of the freakishly talented people are. Yep. Well, who were your, growing up and everything, like, who were your main influences writing-wise, playing-wise, even singing-wise? I mean... I would say um, guitar players... The, the the first person to make me love guitar was obviously Ace Frehley. I was a, a Kiss Duh. fanatic as a young young man, and then uh, and you could play his parts. Yeah, they were they were easy to learn. Yeah, but and then uh, I would say beyond after that, Randy Rhodes. You know, got into that world, yeah. the, the rock guys, and then it was 
Stevie Ray Vaughan. I went I went into that world and kind of never came back. And yeah. then that led that opened up all the different forms of the blues guys, and, and you learned what their quirks and their styles was. The Albert Kings and the Gatemouth Browns, and all these different, and, and even Jimmy Vaughn. And then I kind of yeah. got into, uh, I'd say my favorite guys to listen to these days. I still, I'm a, I'm a huge Robin Ford fan. I, oh, I love man, Robin yeah. Ford, and that's what kind of the, the guys that made me love guitar. And uh, I uh, singers. Dude, my first singer that I ever fell in love with would be Paul Rogers from Bad Company, hmm. and Lou, and uh, Paul Carrick, yep, and Lou Graham of uh, Foreigner. Florida. Those were the probably the three rock guys that I most was chasing, and and I could kind of sing in their register, so it felt ho- like home to me. And then, uh, and, and they're then, re- real singers too, not screamers. They're, those three, guys. and I don't know why I don't. Yeah. I didn't know any better. I don't really think I became a decent singer until I got around Brian. Really? And then I'd say Brian and Steve Warner and Vince Gill became like the next bar because yeah. then you get around those guys and and I I'd never heard guys that could do things like they could do with their voices and especially Brian, I mean Brian was such a just a wealth of natural talent. Yeah. That it it was it was really truly a joy to watch him at times and 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 learned a lot from him. And uh, and he taught me a lot about how he approached singing and all that stuff and 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 that's you know I, I'm grateful for our time together because we did we really did. I, I introduced him to the rock world, and he really introduced me to the country world and the deeper soul side of singing that uh, that I never yeah. had. Songwriter wise, first songwriters would have been James Taylor, right? Joni Mitchell, Prince, uh, hmm. those those three guys, which led me uh, and, and Jimmy Webb. I mean, I was a huge oh, Jimmy Webb fan, and yeah. uh, I mean, I literally had. I wrote for Glenn Campbell Music, uh, which and which you know obviously Glenn's all Glenn's biggest hits are Jimmy Webb songs. Yeah, and, but I uh, they worked some of his catalog for a while, so I had access to all his work tapes, and so I would I would make copies of those work tapes and take them home and really and just listen to him playing piano in a room, you know, with these some of these just incredible songs with just him and as raw as raw can get, you know. Man, and that was that was a. a, a Fun stuff. So those were the, the my main influences. And Mac McAnally, golly, yeah. we were in. A, uh, I'd say if I had to still pick a favorite, it'd be Mac. Yeah, it's kind of hard to go wrong on that deal. Yeah. Did you ever get a ride with Jimmy Webb? No, I, I went to dinner with him a couple of times. Did and you? Hung out and uh, uh, but I never got to ride with him. Before. Yeah. You've had so many great cuts and hits. I mean, Darius and Brantley Gilbert, of course, Randy, Blake Shelton, Tim McGraw. I mean, what do you when you look back on that? Do you do you still feel you got? Is there a lot left in the tank? Uh, that's a good question. Um, do you know how many songs you've written? Man, at least a hundred for the last twenty five years. So. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, you yeah. know, what I'm saying it's like the it's it's somewhere in that somewhere in that range, and I um I think that. Anytime I sit in a room and a great idea is there, something that where it crystallizes and everybody in the room, yeah, I immediately feel that that spark, and 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 you can tell when that happens. And everybody in the room is it's a heightened sense. I think a lot a lot of times now I, I feel like we're in a time period where what's considered a good quality song in the time when you and I came up in this town. Mm-hmm. You know what those songs were. 
a lot of these songs, I mean, and that's not a good or bad thing sure. because, yeah. but there was just a Nashville lens of the way songs were judged. A lot of the songs that are, that are out there on the radio now, I mean, if we'd have turned those in, our publishers would have, they wouldn't even have allowed us to go demo. Right. You know, yeah. and, but that's not, and this is, like I said, that doesn't mean that they're bad. No, it's just because, a different time. Yeah, it's a different time. Yeah. And that's, and that's, you and I were held to that standard because people were paying us to write quality songs that they had to go out and pitch and get cut and, and and nowadays, I really think that it's so much more about if you got a great idea, then that's obviously a plus. But a lot of times, it's just about the melody more these days than yeah. it is about the actual lyric. And that's okay because pop music has lived in that world for for years. Absolutely. And and it's and and they've always outsold us. So I'm I'm interesting to see I'm interested to see what what's going to happen in the next ten years of country yeah. music. You know. So yes, I still got gas in the tank, but there are days. When I when I don't necessarily know that I know what the target is anymore, dude, that's the yeah. hardest part of it. Yeah. When you listen to, I think lyric wise, also it's beginning to be a lot more pop, where it's more rhythmic mm-hmm. than storytelling, track driven, track production driven, driven. Yeah. production driven. Yeah. yeah. Which, like you say, it's not good or bad. It's just yeah. different. Yeah. And it it that stuff is is been really hard for me to adapt. Yeah. So I haven't done it. <laughs> well, and, and it's and it's you know whether it's being too candid or not, but uh, the uh, the truth of the matter is is that this conversation that we're having here is is a conversation that I have every day. Yeah, with every absolutely. writer yeah. in town, you know, sure. everybody I write with, we're all thinking the same thing. Yeah, we um, we all know that it's a difficult time to kind of go. Okay, well, what is what is it that we're what are people seeing as a hit, or why 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 is this song getting yeah. picked over this other one over here? And and there are a lot of different. Factors that go into that on the political side of things, too. So yeah. we all know, we understand. But we still know the lay of the land, and you know, all right, this is what I signed up for. So you pull, pull your bootstraps yeah, up and you absolutely. go. absolutely. Yeah. You either compete or you don't. That's right. Yeah. And, and that's the thing. I, what I hate about it more than anything is not necessarily – I like the challenge of it still. But, man, we have right now at this time in history in Nashville, which is a heartbreaking thing to think about, we have more incredibly – gifted, great veteran songwriters who can't even get a publishing deal. That part of it to yeah. me is one of the hardest things to understand. And and you sit there and look at it and go, God, man, they've got so much to offer and so much to teach. Uh, and and there's just no middle class in the music business anymore. No. You're either killing it or trying to kill it. Yeah. And that's what's where it is. There's not a middle class anymore. That's yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> You just made me really sad. <laughs> <laughs> well, look at here. <laughs> We're still doing it. Because I am not killing it. <laughs> well, I'm not either. Yeah, I mean, I remember one time when I was at Windswept, we were at Windswept, Jeff Steele said, there's less professional songwriters. And by that, he meant getting a draw, having a publishing deal. Yeah. He said there's less professional songwriters than there are professional football players. Mm. It's like, yeah. holy cow. And now that number's got to be way down yeah. compared to that. Who was it was telling me something, and I had never thought about this before, but they were talking about, it was an ASCAP BMI form or something where they were talking, one of the, one of the PROs was talking about how that less than... I, I will totally botch this, but what blew my mind was was the the difference between of, of folks that will have one hit song and how exponentially 
the numbers went down to have multiples, you know, as a songwriter. And, yeah. and it's like, you're like, it was like earth shattering. You go, wow. Oh yeah. Of, of, of songwriters who actually make money that actually ASCAP or BMI actually pay how, when it goes from that one to like one to four or five hits or whatever, yeah. it's it, astronomically. <laughs> well, Craig Wiseman, after my second hit, he goes, it may man. Have been actually Craig that we were, we we're talking about this. It one. might have been Craig. Yeah. Cause he was like, Oh man, congratulations. He goes, anybody can have one hit, but he goes, but when you have two, that's when you, I think you're a real writer. Yeah. It's like, I thought that was just yeah. interesting, kind of backs up what you're saying there. Yeah. So you started a Wide Open Music Group. Oh, yeah. Uh, publishing company. What? Yeah. What'd you learn? From, I, I learned. From that. Did you write for your own company? Yeah, I did. Um it was with a with a with a buddy of mine named Steve Williams, who was an investor uh, and a, and a, and a great singer and musician himself. Is and that we, Williams Riley from Williams Riley. Okay, yeah. yeah. And uh, we uh, we started that company. I think it was in two thousand and eight. And uh, what I learned, you and I both wrote for the same company for many years. Uh, early two thousand, windswept over there, and that was when I would really kind of realize that you start getting to the point in this business where I've been here for 10, 12 years and have been successful enough to stay in it, but you start to think about, okay, well, what's the next step? Yeah. And and this was before the crash of 2008 when, when, when the economy kind of went down. And coincidentally, catalog sales went down after that too. And and But my focus began when I was at Windswept was what began to be, I got to make, I got to have enough hits where I can sell a catalog because that's the only way a writer really gets to cash out and, uh, yeah. and, or, or either rake some chips off the table for your family, hopefully pay your house off and move forward. That's, that's what, that's the way most of us think. Absolutely. That's what we're all working towards. It's Absolutely. just, man, we don't, we, we, most of us are being damn making music for free. Yeah. It, but it's the idea of, I don't want to be rich, but I don't want to be homeless. Yeah. And so it's like, you know, it's like, I want to make enough money to, to take care of these things that are real life things that you got to take care of, Yeah, you know? And, and as I was kind of getting to the, coming to the end of my windswept deal, I remember thinking, well, and just by happens, I, I said, I want to, I want to try try my hand at being on the publishing side because there's, there's ownership involved and you got, you, you kind of, um, divide and conquer. You, you put yourself in a lot of different rooms at that point instead of just yeah. being in the room you're in. And, and I learned a lot about the publishing Learned a lot about the legality aspect of it, of how to uh, the contracts, how they all worked, and and, yeah. and what all that meant. But I learned that I am at that time because I was so focused on still trying to build myself as a songwriter, at right. that brand of that, that I was not an efficient publisher. And um, uh, I work with a guy named Frank Rogers now, who is I see what he does as a publisher and what he does as a writer, and he's still doing doing both oh, yeah. very well. And and I realized that Frank's doing that, though, because he has already established himself sure. as, as that writer. I still hadn't have, didn't have enough stuff okay. going on yeah. at the time. And I think Frank had reached that point where he realized, okay, I've got my brand as a producer and as a songwriter. Now it's time to build this side of things. And he does a great job of giving feedback on songs, uh, being engaged with the writers, really going the extra mile. And where, as me as a producer writer, I feel like it really helps me sometimes when if I'm feeling a little like, man, this one aspect of the lyric is not right. He is a great sounding board hmm. to bounce that off of to go. Nope, I think you're missing it here. And 
I don't take that as criticism because we're all just kind of turning these things out day in and day out. And it's, yeah. it's easy to do a flyover and move on, turn the song in. But if he, found, if he thinks I turn in something that's really good, he's the first one to go, man, this is great. It could even be better if you tweak this. Right. And it's usually he's dead on the money about what where, where, where the hole in the song is. And you respect him yeah. because of his track record. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. But as a publisher – I think I could be a much better publisher now than what I was. Sure. But uh, we, I only knew of publishing what I knew of publishing and, uh, <laughs> and the people who I had learned for. And the, and the best and, – and I realized – this is when I, when I realized when I left Wide Open and went to Warner Chapel, Alicia Pruitt was my point person there. Okay. Hands down, it was the first time in my life that I felt like – this is a real publisher. This is someone who understands how value the value of my time and the value of hers and the company's time. It was a, a of equal benefit. I really felt like for the first time I was locked arms yeah. with someone who would fight for you and at the same time tell you, dude, you don't need to do this. Right. This is a waste of your time. Don't don't you don't need these days on your calendar. You, I don't. You don't need to be busy for the sake of being busy. Hmm. I'm not trying to book you with people just to prove my worth to you. I'm only going to put you in the rooms when it's important. See, man, I think that's something I longed for the whole time because I was always low man on the totem pole as a writer. Yeah. So I, I never, and I'm probably just whining to be whining, like my hmm. wife will tell me. But having a champion, somebody to champion your songs. Instead of going, well, I pitched it to this person and this person, so what else you got? Well, you could pitch it to the other 4,500 yeah. people that have the yeah. – and having a champion like that, that's awesome, man. That's that's in, very encouraging. It, and, and, you know, I think writers, because we do, I mean, you know, uh, we I've had great publishers who all had certain strengths along the way before sure. that. But what was great about the other – having Alicia around – not only was she a great song person, it, it it's motivating. You you need to have someone who is a champion and a cheerleader because you think about it, dude. If we write, I mean, I guess unless you're Ashley, who, you know, is getting, you know, have had, had tons and tons and tons of cuts. Yeah. Because he's that damn good. Yeah. It's uh, for the guys like me who I feel like, man, I'm a half-ass songwriter. <laughs> they... Uh, I always feel like that at least inspires me because, I mean, dude, there are some songwriters who are great songwriters. You may get one cut a year. Yeah. Or you may go two years without a cut. Yeah. And and it's like going, when you're writing every day and you're not getting that kind of feedback and that positive energy, it's hard to keep what I keep the clock wound is what I yeah. call it. It's like, man, dude, you got to feel like the clock is wound or else songwriters can spiral yeah. really fast because – You've been in those situations where uh, that where you feel like you'll, you'll turn in a song and you not get any kind of feedback back about it, uh, and then you sit there and go, especially if it's one you really are feeling great about. Yeah. I, tell me, give me something. Tell me you love or you hate it, because some writers live and die by that posit that, that positivity. Or tell me you listen to it mm -hmm. and say, yeah, man, I dug it, but it's just okay. You know I mean? That, that's okay. I, I can't tell you how many times that I turn in a song to Alicia and she'd go, yeah, this is good. Or that's cool. You know? And, and I knew, yeah. but when I turned in one that where it rung the bell, she was like, dude, I already sent this to, some you know what I'm saying? And, it, and that's knowing that yeah. is, is, is what was good. And, and I feel like that, um, uh, you know, 
I'm in a place now where I feel like I've got Frank is that way and AJ is that way. You yeah. know, and AJ was at um, Yeah, man, I love yeah, him. Yeah. yeah. Dude, there was a time <laughs> I won't say where I was. Lord. But I was handing in songs, turning in songs, and I would put really big songwriters' names on them. Yeah. And then just to make sure it got listened to. Yeah. They'd go, You wrote this with you know, Ace Fraley? Yeah. I said, no, but I just didn't know any other way to get you to listen get to my your song. Attention, yeah. I just need to have a little attention. I'm yeah. just a little whiny part over here. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that that comes too from the certain, there's pros and cons about being at smaller companies and bigger companies. Both, yeah. On both sides, there's, I feel like on the, when you're with a bigger company, you get information they their information is at a premium of what's yeah, going on yeah, yeah. and and who you need to be with and what's the interconnectings this manager's working with them so this is going to move faster than this and you need to spend time writing with this person I think you have uh at smaller companies though you get the attention yeah and and you get the 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 fact that that they're willing to work and they're willing to to go out and grind and and all that kind of stuff i i can say that i have had both i've had it all all different ways yeah. and uh but but I but I learned. I guess the long to say is that, going back to the original question, is was there I, for the publishing side of things? I learned that I was not a great publisher when I left sure. my publishing company that that I was working for at the time, and I realized, oh, this is what this is how you're supposed to do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, plus you were that's two complete different headspaces. Yeah, and we were a startup company, so and we really only had. Two veteran writers, so it's like you're trying to build catalog. Right. So I felt like I knew those first couple of years, I needed to just put my head down and write, 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 write. I think we got 14 cuts in the first two years Man, that we were awesome. there, that I was there. But the thing is, no singles. Yeah. And that was when I began to realize to just how much the publishing game had changed at that time. It's like, oh, you're going to start a publishing company at the worst possible time. <laughs> In the history of the music business to do that. The internet has finally won. Right. And we're not monetizing any of this money. And record sales are at an all-time low. And uh, and so you start to realize that those Way cuts that we would get early on in the 2000s, you get a Rascal Flatts cut. They were selling platinum records. You're, that'll keep you in your writing deal. Dude. Absolutely. And nowadays that won't – you could have three cuts a year if you don't have a single. You don't even recoup on the demos. Mm-mm. And so that's that's just where we are. Yeah. It's awesome, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and here we are. <laughs> no, but I mean, when Cos Weaver, who I freaking love and will to the day I die, when he came over to Disney, was from Warner's. Yeah. And I said, how many writers were you the day-to-day person for? And he said, about 25. Yeah. And I go, okay. So on any given time, what's an if a writer's writing three songs a week... Out of 25 writers, five writers are doing demos every week, which is another, what, 25 songs. Yeah. You got 25 writers writing three songs a week. That's 75. So that's 100 songs a week, and you're doing catalog, and you're doing, uh, not, uh, not catalog, calendars. I go, how does a writer get your attention? I go, does he just need to stand up on your desk and pull his pants down? He said, Pretty much. Yeah. It's like, man, I can't imagine. Yeah. Like, I was never at a... At, I'm not I, a squeaky wheel guy no, either. No, I'm, me, I am no. literally 
I'm a, I'm a worker bee dude. I yep. like to lay back in the weeds. I do my work. You can bet if you call me on any given day or if I call in sick, I'm sick. Or if you if yeah. I call in and I, and, I, and I say I need to block this time, it's not because I'm usually taking a vacation. It's because I'm working. Yeah. And uh, I, I've just I've gotten to that point where either production-wise or demo-wise, I'm so backlogged that I need the days just to catch up. Right. And, and it's I, – I, I can see where – that's not beneficial in the world we live in because it's become very much a camp world that we're living in now. It's, yeah, it's about – they're signing writers based on what camp you're attached to. Yep. You know, uh, yep. Do you know the FGL guys or do you know these guys? Are you in with those, right with those people? And that's the reason why people sign you these days is because of your access to – Your access, absolutely. And, 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 and I understand why publishers think that way. But sure. I also think they're leaving something on the table because yeah. – I, I of the mindset that the publishing companies these days they are the um, artist development, and hmm. if if I was you know interesting. if I worked at a, a, a in a major publishing company that's what my focus would be. Yeah. It would be on man, I want I want me a stable full of veteran writers and new artists, and I would be making their records now. Every yeah. time they wrote anything that I felt like was a needle mover. You'd make their records and EPs, and be re- I'd be releasing them as the publishing company. Yeah, I totally. And agree and with that. then when the labels want to get involved, then you negotiate and deal yeah. with that. That's I think in a lot of ways, if artists can afford to, especially the younger artists who are moving to town, if they can afford to hold out and to and build it on the, their own on the outside, mm. if they can, if they're savvy enough or have access to some form of money for promotion to build it on their own from the outside, it's hands down the way to do it. You're, you're begging in otherwise, and now this is not a good business to beg into. Yeah, anymore. no, it's not. Labels have always been the biggest entrepreneurs in town, but when the returns aren't coming back in, yeah. it's like, and we've all seen, like you said, the internet one. Yeah. We've got 6,000 ways to get our songs to somewhere yeah. without a label. And man, I love, I, I will defend labels my whole life because I worked for labels yeah. forever. And it's it's always their buck. Like when I was working with Dixie Chicks, we had over a million dollars in them before the first single ever came out. Yeah. Well, you might not ever make a nickel of that back. That's right. And so I don't know. It's that's that's a. I like your ideas. Yeah. You're hired. Yeah. Come on. Come on. <laughs> so um, I'm just looking around your uh, this little guitar store here. Yes. What uh, what are much. you what are you using and playing these days? Everything, man. Let's see. Yep. I mean, I still got all the staples. I got a, uh, I got a couple of Les Pauls. They're not. They're not older Les Pauls. I think they're like ones. Well, ones. Ones are kind of a cool guitar. It, uh, it used to belong to Dan Toller. Oh yeah, Dangerous and, uh, Dan. Yeah, and uh, and I have that guitar. That's my main Les Paul. I have a, a borrowed Les Paul with uh, with a uh, Evertune bridge on it, just for when I'm like literally trying to go fast and need to just do big power chords mm-hmm. to take the time to tune. It's that's that's handy. Uh, I, uh, I don't want to take the time to tune. I do. I mean, well, it's like you know, dude, you don't realize like you're sitting in the room and you're going, dude, because I'm I get it drives me nuts. You know, oh, when yeah. you're I mean, I spend just as much time as I'm doing a solo or. <laughs> Doing a record, I'm I'm over here tuning as much as the time as I am playing. It's <laughs> just like going, it's not tuned, it's not in tune. <laughs> uh, then I have a, you know, when I've got my old telly and my old strats. But to be honest, I still use, uh, I use my Tyler guitars, brother James Tyler. Yeah, and uh, and I have a LSL telly 
with a humbucker in the neck, a P90 in the neck, and uh, yeah, P90 in the neck, and a humbucker in the bridge. Okay. And I, uh, but you can tap it to get the telly sound oh, too. Yeah. And I, uh, those are the main guitars I use. I don't use my older guitars as much as I, I used to. I, and, I, and I think that's just because, man, I mean, when you played a Tyler and you played some of these newer guitars, they just have such great technology and build them today that, yeah, they, they just play good. And, yeah. and uh, I mean, there's definitely something to be said about the sound of the older wood and the, and the, and the 28. And if I was doing a guitar record and I had that kind of time to geek out and that's sure. what it's about before what we're doing for commercial music, it's, it's not about the guitars as much anymore. I have a feeling, though, that the wood in a 1959 Les Paul and the wood in a 2019 Telecaster are probably pretty close on the age. Yeah. <laughs> that, you know, yeah. now the new one hasn't been vibrated as much. Yeah. And especially acoustics love that. Yeah. Hey, man, also, we were talking. I mean, I see all these awesome amps you have here. Yep. But we were also talking about fractals and campers and everything. Man, the last session I did, Derek Wells rolled in with a gig bag and a little case. Yeah. And he opened it up and it was a Kemper and he had a telly and a Les Paul in his gig bag. Yeah. And he goes, This is all I need. Yeah. And it's freaking Derek Wells. Yeah. He's awesome. And he's like, dude, I got my fifty watt Marshall head in here. I've got my hundred watt plexi yeah. in here. I've got my fender this and that. It's like Yeah. It's it's pretty scary how amazing those boxes are. The technology sound. is it's it's incredible. I mean, I, I haven't seen this. That one company, that quilter company, they're making, they're making amps out of a pedal. I mean, that if, if you've seen those little quilter micro uh-uh. blocks, no, it's literally you you plug a guitar into it and into a speaker. And, quilter, uh, <laughs> yes, and uh, and, and it's it's I'm it's insane what we what we have sonically, how far we've come. You know, because you and I remember the first. I mean, I probably had one of the first line six heads. I mean, just how far they've come, oh, you know, yeah. and, 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 and the amp modeling. And, and uh, I use this uh, positive grid. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I use those, that a lot because I love okay. how geeky it is. Uh, That's cool, though. Where you can change out capacitors and, and yeah. preamp sections and, and tube sections. And I, I remember calling Tim Godwin when I was first got my first line six head. And I remember telling him when he was over there at line six, I remember saying, you know what y'all need to do? You need to make you need to make uh, to make it where you can change those things, and then uh, change those preamp sections where you can say like I want a I want a uh, AC thirty output stage or and then oh, a, or yeah. a or a super reverb preamp stage. Okay, because your modeling circuitry it's it's as easy. Yeah, it's why not? There's nothing stopping you. You don't you don't need a certain power supply to 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 keep it all running right. Dude, you know, so it's like awesome. But I remember that Fractal does that. Yeah. You can get in there and tweak the resistant resistors, and I do it all the time. Yeah, and you know, Dude. and that stuff really plays a big part. Oh yeah, you know, and and see, that's where you have option anxiety. Oh, it is. It's if I too look much. at that, yeah. like now the new Fractal little footboard, I can't remember what it's called. It was the AX8. Now it's the next one. Yeah. has twenty two hundred cabinet options. That's crazy. Just cabinet. Yeah. As well as you know, I mean. 2,000 amps. Yeah. And then you can combine amps. And then, like you were talking earlier, all the effects. And Kemper's the same thing. Yeah. Freaking amazing box. But, yeah. Yep. That's a, it's a, it's fun. It's fun times. I love that Universal Audio Oxbox thing. Yeah, that's cool. I've used, I've gotten a lot of use out of it. Uh, It's, it comes in handy late at night when I've got to play some guitars and rock out, but I can't, you know, crank up a, that's why I got, that's why I got the fractal. Yeah. 
is because I had just a 112 with a 25-watt Celestian in a closet wrapped in blankets with a 57 in front of it. But, you know, you got to move some air to get some tone. Yeah, absolutely. And you put, like you say, you put your Marshall in front of that. And then I was going upstairs, and Amy was sitting cross-legged on the floor trying to listen to the TV. And it's yeah. like, that's okay, I can't do this yeah. anymore. Yeah. I gotta, it's her house, too. Yep. Nope, that's but, it. You want to do my lightning round? What is your lightning All right, let's do it. All I'm right. up for anything. Up for anything. Goodness. Can See you if you can do Ralph? this. <laughs> <laughs> Gee, what? <laughs> Well, goodness, look at there. What I want you to do is I'm going to ask you these questions. Okay. And I don't want you to think about All nothing. Right. I just want you to answer. Okay. What's your favorite book? Prayer for Owen Meany. Really? Mm-hmm. I love that book. What's your favorite food? Ribs. Nice. Uh, what kind from, uh, what kind I'm of a dry sauce? rub guy. Dry rub guy? Yep. What's your favorite quote? Favorite quote? No man ever went broke by underestimating the poor taste of the American public. <laughs> it served me well. The other one is the Scott Baggett. Uh, in the music business, no good deed goes unpunished. <laughs> Who said the first one? Is that like Roger Miller or somebody? I, you know, it was always, when I initially heard that quote, <laughs> it was always attributed to P.T. Barnum. But oh. I think it was J.L. Minken. Talking about P.T. Barnum. Okay. It, okay, I've heard it as Barnum. I yeah. said that on a, uh, <laughs> I said that on the bus one night, and uh, this is funny. We were on the road with Brian, and 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 it was something I I can't remember what it was, and I made that comment, and no man ever went broke by underestimating the poor taste of the American public, and and I said whoever said that was a genius, and then Chris uh, Jones. Whose wife works for William Morris, uh, Leanne. She, uh, Chris Jones is our monitor engineer, and he looks up. He goes, "No, nah, whoever said that had a stable full of midgets." <laughs> <laughs> Total East Tennessee. <laughs> midgets is probably not a good word. I'm sorry I said that, but it was in context. I'm quoting. And also, this was this was in the 80s and 90s. You can still yeah. say that. <laughs> we had no uh, camera phones. <laughs> uh, that's for mm-hmm. sure. What's the first concert you saw, and how old were you? Like not not, uh, not singers well, at church. I would but. say the first concert I ever saw was Glenn Campbell at uh, really. I was probably ten years old, and the, but the but the first rock concert I ever went to was uh, Motley Crue and Guns N' Roses. Nice. Mm-hmm. I went to Motley Crue's last concert. Yeah, out in L.A. Oh, dude, I was watching that Dirt show. Oh yeah, God, we don't need to get into that. That's no, way too no, much. That's uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so you are a singer. Guitar player, writer, producer. If you had a gun to your head and you could only do one of those, what would it be? And I know that's an oh, insanely unfair question. If uh, if I had a gun to my head and I could only do one successfully, okay, would be a songwriter, hands down. Really? Yeah. yeah. Because it's the easiest. Uh, it's the easiest lifestyle job, and I and I like what it affords me in time. When I I can look back at our our days at Windswept was a was a was a great time for me as hu- in human in, in my humanity because we were Leslie and I were just gotten married and we were starting to have kids but what I remember about that that I missed it was kind of like I didn't go to college because I was on, on the road when I was 18 and it was my college years I look at it like that because I, I read I had so much time to read and I love that about being a songwriter it's like man mm-hmm. part of my job is to get to 
Yeah. Uh, I'm think about you. creativity and, and read. And, and I could read six hours before I had to be at my first writing appointment and, yeah. and, 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 and feel like go, then go write a song and then come back and do a demo and be like, I'm like that was accomplished. It's a good day. Yeah. That's a good day. So songwriter, and, hands down, if I could be successful. Yeah. If, but this problem with the business is these days, you can't afford to do just one. You got to do more than one. That also was outside of my time at Sony with the chicks, and with yeah. Je- which is how I met Jeffrey, of course. That windswept, those those years were the closest thing to that that I ever had felt like a real team. Yeah, yeah. Like we were absolutely. all pulling for each other, yeah. man. You getting a cut made me just as happy yeah, as we, me getting a cut. That was, that was, that was just, a good mix of folks. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. What's a favorite song you wrote, whether it was a hit, not a hit, nobody's heard it but you? Uh, I've got two, uh, and and uh, 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 that I would say that are my favorites. Uh, one is one that I wrote with Tim Owens. It's called uh, "Like It Used to Be," and uh, it's never been cut, but it's been on hold a bunch of times. It's kind of it's it's uh, it's it's in that vein of more of a, it's in the feel of like a house that built me kind of singer songwriter cool. finger picking style kind of a song. And, yeah, and it's it's just about um, about how much life has changed mm-hmm. and um, and and. And how I think we all pine from some of the traditional ways of doing living life, and then uh, and then the song I wrote recently, I wrote with Monty Criswell that I think is a really great song. It's called uh, uh, "Loved You Longer." You know, it's you know if I'd only found you sooner, I could have loved you longer. Is the thought? That's it's, awesome. it's a really a cool song and written in a way that's that really points at all the things in life that I like. And it's like you know, it's, it's good cigars, good whiskey. Yeah, and then the, the course being focused on your wife, you know what I mean. But you know, if I'd only found you soon, I could have loved you longer. Just those things, the simple pleasures in life, and dude, that about makes me cry. Amy and I were at my folks' fiftieth anniversary, and I was really quiet one night. She goes, "What's the problem? This is a great time." What are yeah, we? and I said, "We're not going to have fifty years together." So that's yeah. that's awesome, man. I'll you may, that. you don't ever know. <laughs> goodness. <laughs> If she don't come in and unplug my iron lung, we'll be just fine, Ralph. <laughs> what, bless what, you. Bless you. What song you wish you would have written, would have written? I mean, National Anthem, Amazing Grace, whatever. Man, uh, there's so many Jimmy Webb songs that would be on that list and so many uh, Mac songs. Let me think. Golly. Uh, I know. It's hard, isn't it? Uh Good Lord, I'm trying to think of, I mean, there's so many uh, of the Mac songs, but, I, and these are songs that, you know, like I said, they're just, they're just personal to me. I, I don't yeah. know why I like them so much, but I love Opinion on Love by Mac McAnally. Oh, yeah. And I love, uh, I'm trying to think if there's anything that slayed me in, in the last few years that I just go every time I hear, oh, I tell you, some of the stuff. Uh, Harry Nilsson did. I, I'm yeah. huge. I just I, I listen to those records, and, and, and I'm, I'm always just in awe of how talented he was. And he was a train wreck, probably as a human, but man, I got yeah. talent. I think the, those cats must have had so much freedom in writing yeah. whatever they want to write today. I mean, yeah. like I <laughs> sitting with Jeff Steele one day, and I just looked up and I said, "No." He looked up at me and he goes, "You can't change film with a kid on your back." You just can't do it. And I looked at him and I went, you can't roller skate in a buffalo herd. It was like, we just started howling at these yeah. Roger Miller lyrics yeah. and just. Ridiculous. But there was so much freedom there. That's like, 
they didn't have to go, okay, let's write a song for Lady Antebellum today. Yeah. They just wrote whatever they wanted to write. And, and again, not good or bad. It's just, it's just different. Yeah. Well, and you could appreciate it for, for, for so many different levels. I mean, there's, there was a, there are masters of the craft of songwriting and I, and I, and I, and I think there's lots of different ways to get there. Yeah. And uh, nobody's going to argue with Fire and Rain <clears throat> oh, man. not being a masterpiece, even though it wasn't written the same way uh, Bobby Braddock would have wrote, he stopped loving her today. Sure. You know what I mean? And, yep, yep. And um, that's that's, great there's, another, that's another, there's another Bobby Braddock song that always kills me, too. It's called Revelation. That That's another incredible song. I'm going to have to find that one. That was, uh, if you listen to the, the my, Joe Nichols cut it on a record. Oh, really? But, uh, but it's called Revelation? Yeah, it's called Revelation, but, dude, you will love this song. Okay. Uh, it's uh, But it's a... Uh, it's uh, Waylon. Waylon's version of it is the one you want to hear. Oh, okay. It's incredible. Dude, I love... When I'd I... never heard the song, and I had a write with Mo Pitney one day. And Mo... Oh, yeah. He said, you ever heard this song? And he sat down and played the song from start to finish. And um, it was just... It blew my mind. And it's one of those songs that, on a first listen, you're going to go, wow. And then it's like a great book. Mm-hmm. You just keep listening back, and you get all these details that are just packed into these short verses, and you're just going, "How did he do it?" Who would you still like to write with? Who would I still like to write with? Yeah, man, I don't know. I'm trying to think. I. I if it's a good idea, anybody, I don't care. <laughs> if it's a bad one, it's usually going to go bad no matter who it is. Um, I, I have never written with Mac. Yeah. I know I could, but there's that, but it's not something that I've ever pursued because I love the fact that it's still mysterious to me. I'm how great, so with you, man. how great that is, and and uh, it's like you want to say Paul McCartney or somebody, but yeah, then but you go, like, I would just sit in the room and fanboy him all day, and it would yeah, wouldn't I, get anything done. I, um, Stevie Wonder. Yeah, I mean it, and, but it's more like I don't care if we got anything good or not. I just, you know, it'd be fun to hang out with Stevie Wonder. And I think, you know, at one point I would have said Prince, but I mean, golly, you know, it's gonna be hard. Yeah, it's one of those things that where do what doing letting them do what they do is what what's great about it. <laughs> Half of me on writers like that, I I would rather be a fly on the wall just to watch their, their process. process without me in there yeah. getting in their way. Yeah. Because I just want to go, you know, are you guys starting with a chorus or what, yeah. are, you, what are you doing? Yeah. Are you you wasting a bunch of time tuning Les Pauls? What yeah, are you that's doing it. That's here? it. Well, goodness, what's next for Derek George? Uh, I uh, I have a little small production company that uh, that I've started with a friend, Julian King. And we are, uh, we have four acts that we're working with right now that we're getting ready to start releasing music on. And, and I, that's kind of what... What I wanted to do at Wide Open was kind of start, you know, signing an artist and, and building, doing like what I talked about before. If I was right. a publishing company, yeah. I wouldn't be worried about the publishing. It would be the side side. It would it would be the side thing I'd be worried about. It would be more, let's develop these artists. And then you've got the publishing is taken care of. You don't need to worry about that if you develop the art, the, the artist right. Yeah. And, and that's kind of what we're doing here, you know, because we're at a time. This is one thing I do like about the technology. It's never been cheaper in the, than the, ever to record records. Yeah. It's the cheapest part of the process anymore. And so I have four young artists that I'm working with that I uh, have been hunkered down writing with for a year or so. And, and we'll just see what happens. And then we'll, we'll, we'll get their, their products out and 
see what it does. I mean, I, I think that that's the model. I think it's you got to build a rocket ship, yeah, and then hope hopefully draw enough attention that, that we're a label or somebody will come in and want to want you to upsell it to them and get the rocket off the launch pad. <laughs> I like the word upsell. That's yeah. Good. Well, man, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, dude. This I love you, buddy. I've always enjoyed you, you too, so brother. much and just thankful for your friendship. Back at you, man. Back at you. And God bless you, dude. And you and Amy. Too, man. Y'all have a, a great summer coming up. Yes. And we need to... Uh, Make more time to do this kind of I know, stuff. Man. I'm, I'm, I would, me and Julian were talking about doing one of these p- podcasts, but, uh, but a video for YouTube or whatever, but doing it all about guitars and cigars. And oh, I'm going to have you back out. I have you back out. And then can, you, then you're going to be my, I can bring some of, I can bring some of both. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, buddy. Thank you, man. 